Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to Catholic Light. This week we'll read paragraphs 74 through 119 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and we'll discuss how God gives us truth, truth, and nothing but the truth. I started in the notes of last week's episode, and I will continue to do so moving forward. I noted the approximate minute mark where I start giving commentary on this particular week's reading of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So if moving forward, you would like to skip the first half of the episode, or if you would like to read the Catechism passages on your own and just listen to my commentary on the passage, uh, just look in the episode notes and I'll note approximately what minute I start the commentary. So we begin with paragraph 74. Article 2, The Transmission of Divine Revelation. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, that is, of Christ Jesus. Christ must be proclaimed to all nations and individuals so that this revelation may reach to the ends of the earth. God graciously arranged that the things he had once revealed for the salvation of all peoples should remain in their entirety throughout the ages and be transmitted to all generations. The Apostolic Tradition Christ the Lord, in whom the entire revelation of the Most High God is summed up, commanded the apostles to preach the gospel, which had been promised beforehand by the prophets, and which he fulfilled in his own person and promulgated with his own lips. In preaching the gospel, they were to communicate the gifts of God to all men. This gospel was to be the source of all saving truth and moral discipline. In the Apostolic Preaching In keeping with the Lord's command, the gospel was handed on in two ways. First, orally, by the apostles who handed on, by the spoken word of their preaching, by the example they gave, by the institutions they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and his works, or whether they had learned it at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in writing, by those apostles and other men associated with the apostles who, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, committed the message of salvation to writing. Continued in apostolic succession. In order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors. They gave them their own position of teaching authority. Indeed, the apostolic preaching, which is expressed in a special way in the inspired books, was to be preserved in a continuous line of succession until the end of time. This living transmission accomplished in the Holy Spirit is called tradition, since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. Through tradition, the church in her doctrine, life, and worship perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is, all that she believes. The sayings of the Holy Fathers are a witness to the life-giving presence of this tradition, showing how its riches are poured out in the practice and life of the church, in her belief and her prayer. The Father's self-communication made through his word in the Holy Spirit remains present and active in the church. God, who spoke in the past, continues to converse with the spouse of his beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit, through whom the living voice of the gospel rings out in the church and through her in the world, leads believers to the full truth and makes the word of Christ dwell in them in all its richness.
the relationship between tradition and sacred scripture. One common source. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture, then, are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them, flowing out from the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ, who promised to remain with his own always to the close of the age. Two distinct modes of transmission. Sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. And holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that, enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their teaching. As a result, the church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Apostolic Tradition and Ecclesial Traditions The tradition here in question comes from the apostles and hands on what they received from Jesus' teaching and example and what they learned from the Holy Spirit. The first generation of Christians did not yet have a written New Testament, and the New Testament itself demonstrates the process of living tradition. Tradition is to be distinguished from the various theological, disciplinary, liturgical, or devotional traditions born in the local churches over time. These are the particular forms, adapted to different places and times, in which the great tradition is expressed. In the light of tradition, these traditions can be retained, modified, or even abandoned under the guidance of the church's magisterium. The Interpretation of the Heritage of Faith The heritage of faith entrusted to the whole of the church. The apostles entrusted the sacred deposit of the faith, contained in sacred scripture and tradition, to the whole of the church. By adhering to this heritage, the entire holy people, united to its pastors, remains always faithful to the teaching of the apostles, to the brotherhood, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So, in maintaining, practicing, and professing the faith that has been handed on, there should be a remarkable harmony between the bishops and the faithful. The Magisterium of the Church The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the Church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. Yet this magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it. At the divine command and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it listens to this devotedly, guards it with dedication, and expounds it faithfully. All that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed is drawn from this single deposit of faith. Mindful of Christ's words to his, to his apostles, he who hears you hears me, the faithful receive with docility the teachings and directives that their pastors give them in different forms. The dogmas of the faith. The church's magisterium exercises the authority it holds from Christ to the fullest extent when it defines dogmas, that is, when it proposes in a form obliging the Christian people to an irrevocable adherence of faith, truths contained in divine revelation, or also when it proposes, in a definitive way, truths having a necessary connection with these. There is an organic connection between our spiritual life and the dogmas. Dogmas are lights along the path of faith. 
they illuminate it and make it secure. Conversely, if our life is upright, our intellect and heart will be open to welcome the light shed by the dogmas of faith. The mutual connections between dogmas and their coherence can be found in the whole of the revelation of the mystery of Christ. In Catholic doctrine, there exists an order or hierarchy of truths, since they vary in their relation to the foundation of the Christian faith. The supernatural sense of faith. All the faithful share an understanding and handing on revealed truths. They have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit, who instructs them and guides them into all truth. The whole body of the faithful cannot err in matters of belief. This characteristic is shown in the supernatural appreciation of faith on the part of the whole people, when, from the bishops to the last of the faithful, they manifest a universal consent in matters of faith and morals. By this appreciation of the faith, aroused and sustained by the spirit of truth, the people of God, guided by the sacred teaching authority, the magisterium, receives the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The people unfailingly adheres to this faith, penetrates it more deeply with right judgment, and applies it more fully in daily life. Growth in Understanding the Faith Thanks to the assistance of the Holy Spirit, the understanding of both the realities and the words of the heritage of faith is able to grow in the life of the Church. Through the contemplation and study of believers who ponder these things in their hearts, it is in particular theological research which deepens knowledge of revealed truth. From the intimate sense of spiritual realities which believers experience, the sacred scriptures grow with the one who reads them. From the preaching of those who have received, along with their right of succession in the episcopate, the sure charism of truth. It is clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the church are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others. Working together, each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, they all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. In brief, what Christ entrusted to the apostles, they in turn hand, handed on by their preaching and writing, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to all generations until Christ returns in glory. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God, in which, as in a mirror, the pilgrim church contemplates God, the source of all her riches. The church, in her doctrine, life, and worship, perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is, all that she believes. Thanks to its supernatural sense of faith, the people of God as a whole never ceases to welcome, to penetrate more deeply, and to live more fully from the gift of divine revelation. The task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the pope and to the bishops in communion with him. Article 3, Sacred Scripture. Christ, the unique word of sacred scripture. In order to reveal himself to men, in the condescension of his goodness, God speaks to them in human words. Indeed, the words of God expressed in the words of men are in every way like human language, just as the word of the eternal father, when he took on himself the flesh of human weakness, became like men. Through all the words of sacred scripture, God speaks only one single word, his one utterance in whom he expresses himself completely. You recall that one and the same word of God extends throughout scripture, that it is one and the same utterance that resounds in the mouths of all the sacred writers, since he who is in the beginning God, with God, has no need of separate syllables, for he is not subject to time. For this reason, the church has always venerated the scriptures as she venerates the Lord's body. She never ceases to present to the faithful the bread of life, taken from the one table of God's word and Christ's body. 
In sacred scripture, the church constantly finds her nourishment and her strength, for she welcomes it not as a human word, but as what it really is, the word of God. In the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. Inspiration and Truth of Sacred Scripture God is the author of sacred scripture. The divinely revealed realities, which are contained and presented in the text of sacred scripture, have been written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For Holy Mother Church, relying on the faith of the apostolic age, accepts as sacred and canonical the books of the Old and the New Testaments, whole and entire with all their parts, on the grounds that, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author and have been handed on as such to the Church herself. God inspired the human authors of the sacred books. To compose the sacred books, God chose certain men who, all the while he employed them in this task, made full use of their own faculties and powers, so that, though he acted in them and by them, it was as true authors that they consigned to writing whatever he wanted written and no more. The inspired books teach the truth. Since, therefore, all that the inspired authors or sacred writers affirm should be regarded as affirmed by the Holy Spirit, we must acknowledge that the books of sacred scripture, excuse me, scripture, firmly, faithfully, and without error, teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided to the sacred scriptures. Still, the Christian faith is not a religion of the book. Christianity is the religion of the word of God, a word which is not a written and mute word, but the word which is incarnate and living. If the scriptures are not to remain a dead letter, Christ, the eternal word of the living God, must through the Holy Spirit open our minds to understand the scriptures. The Holy Spirit, inter interpreter of scripture. In sacred scripture, God speaks to man in a human way. To interpret scripture correctly, the reader must be attentive to what the human authors truly wanted to affirm and to what God wanted to reveal to us by their words. In order to discover the sacred author's intention, the reader must take into account the conditions of their time and culture, the literary genres in use at that time, and the modes of feeling, speaking, and narrating then current. For the fact is that truth is differently presented and expressed in the various types of historical writing, in prophetical and poetical texts, and in other forms of literary expression. But since sacred scripture is inspired, there is another and no less important principle of correct interpretation. Without which, sacred scripture would remain a dead letter. Sacred scripture must be read and interpreted in the light of the same spirit by whom it was written. The Second Vatican Council indicates three criteria for interpreting scripture in accordance with the spirit who inspired it. First, be especially attentive to the content and unity of the whole scripture. Different as the books which comprise it may be, scripture is a unity by reason of the unity of God's plan, of which Christ Jesus is the center and heart, open since his Passover. The phrase heart of Christ can refer to sacred scripture, which makes known his heart, closed before the passion, as the scripture was obscure. But the scripture has been open since the passion, since those who from then on have understood it, consider and discern in what way the prophecies must be interpreted. Secondly, read the scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. According to a saying of the fathers, sacred scripture is written principally in the church's heart rather than in documents and records, for the church carries in her tradition the living memorial of God's word, and it is the Holy Spirit who gives her the spiritual interpretation of the scripture, according to the spiritual meaning which the Spirit grants to the church. Third, be attentive to the analogy of faith. 
By analogy of faith, we mean the coherence of the truths of faith among themselves and within the whole plan of revelation. The senses of scripture. According to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the latter being subdivided into the allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses. The profound concordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading of the scripture in the church. The literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of scripture and discovered by exegesis, following the rules of sound interpretation. All other senses of sacred scripture are based on the literal. The spiritual sense. Thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of scripture, but also the realities and events about which it speaks can be signs. The allegorical sense. We can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Thus, the crossing of the Red Sea is a sign or type of Christ's victory and also of Christian baptism. The moral sense. The events reported in scripture ought to lead us to act justly. As St. Paul says, they were written for our instruction. The anagogical sense. We can view realities and events in terms of the eternal significance, leading us toward our true homeland. Thus, the church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem. A medieval couplet summarizes the significance of the four senses. The letter speaks of deeds, allegory to faith, the moral how to act, anagogy our destiny. It is the task of exegetes to work, according to these rules, toward a better understanding and explanation of the meaning of sacred scripture in order that their research may help the church to form a firmer judgment. For of course, all that has been said about the manner of interpreting scripture is ultimately subject to the judgment of the church, which exercises the divinely conferred commission and ministry of watching over and interpreting the word of God. But I would not believe in the gospel had not the authority of the Catholic Church already moved me. That was said by St. Augustine. We end our reading there of this week's portion of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We'll take a brief break and then discuss some of what we just read in the second half of the episode. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. Last week, we talked about the God of Revelation, the God who did not have to create, but does, is also the God who does not have to reveal himself, but does. Divine revelation is one of those theology terms that I think often gets thrown around. Sometimes we take it for granted and might think at some point, wait, what does that mean again? So if it's confusing or overwhelming, just consider each word. First, divine refers to God. And then revelation means a revealing or a showing forth. So divine revelation points to the fact that God shows himself to us. Why? Because he loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. It's the same answer to the question, why did God create us? Because he loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. There were a couple of fallback answers for my students if either they didn't know the answer to a question or if they weren't paying attention during class. Uh, one was, because God loves us. Uh, why did God create you? Because God loves us. That's true. Why did Jesus suffer and die on the cross? Because God loves us. Also true. 
please define the Immaculate Conception. Because God loves us. Okay, that's true, but also, are you paying attention? (laughs) The other go-to answer was, oh, it's a mystery. That was kind of like the pat theology class answer. Oh, it's a mystery. So please explain the Holy Trinity, the belief that God is three persons in one God. It's a mystery. True, but we can put some words to it. Why did Jesus suffer and die on the cross? It's a mystery. True, but we can also explain it a bit. Please define the Immaculate Conception. It's a mystery. It is a mysterious concept, but we can define it. Wait, are you paying attention? What's your name? It's a mystery. Okay, you're not paying attention. So we define this term divine revelation to clarify any mysterious theological language. Very simply, it's God showing himself to us. And to point once again to the awesomeness, okay, not sure if that's a word, of this decision and this practice on the part of God. He did not have to reveal himself to us, but he does because he loves us and he wants us to be happy. And what could be more happiness-inducing than being in communion, in a relationship, with life and love and truth and beauty and goodness itself? God then takes it a step further and ensures that all peoples have access to this divine revelation so that all men and women may be saved. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 74, the first one we read today, says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, that is, of Christ Jesus. The Catechism, if you look at the footnote at the bottom of the page there, footnote number 29, is quoting St. Paul's first letter to St. Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4. This is one of the books of the New Testament. While you're perusing the footnotes there, notice that the next footnote, number 30, says C.F. John 1416. That C.F. is an abbreviation for the Latin word confer, and it refers the reader to other material to make a comparison with the topic being discussed. So this footnote refers you to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, which says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like the first Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4 citation, this passage refers to Christ being the way to come to know the truth. And then just one more side note while we're discussing footnotes. So again, in case you're reading the physical book of the Catechism, looking at some of these footnotes, cross-references, extra citations, I just want to point out a couple of things so it's more manageable. Um, notice that the next two footnotes reference a DV7. So you might see DV and think, is that Deuteronomy? Is that another book of the Bible of which I haven't read? Recall from the first episode that the Catechism of the Catholic Church very conveniently has a list of abbreviations in the back. So it's right after the topical index and right before the glossary in the back. If you have that big green study catechism of 1997, the abbreviations start on page 861 and continue on to page 862, listing a variety of sources. And then on page 863, you'll see the abbreviations for the books of the Bible. So if you scroll down to DV, okay, found in footnotes 31 and 32, and referenced uh, many times throughout the rest of the catechism, you'll see that this stands for Dei Verbum, which is a document that comes out of the Second Vatican Council and deals extensively with sacred scripture, or the word of God. So that's just a little more catechism how-to for you, in case you would like, for example, to read Dei Verbum. Uh, It's not long. It can be found online for free. Uh, You could just Google Dei Verbum or go to the vatican.va website, 
and you could read, delve more deeply into the church's teachings on the Bible. So recall that the catechism, though it's thick and filled with lots of awesome and clearly laid out teachings, is but a cliff's notes of the Catholic Church's teachings on faith and morals. There's so much to learn and so many beautiful things to contemplate. So let the Holy Spirit lead you to where he wants you to go and to where your interests lie. I personally am fascinated by the lives of the saints. They're so diverse and they have such incredible stories that I never tire of reading about them. Some are fascinated by the liturgy of the church, the music, the vestments, the colors of each season. I don't get especially moved by that, but if you do, you could read up on Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, which is another document from the Second Vatican Council. Okay, so that's just a little, little more how-to with using the physical book of the Catechism. Now we return to paragraph 74. Again, it says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, that is, of Christ Jesus. Christ must be proclaimed to all nations and individuals so that this revelation may reach to the ends of the earth. It goes on, God graciously arranged that the things he had once revealed for the salvation of all peoples should remain in their entirety throughout the ages and be transmitted to all generations. God, who didn't have to create us, but did, and who didn't have to reveal himself to us, but did and does, didn't have to establish a system of transmitting the truth accurately from generation to generation for millennia, but he does. Why? Because he loves us, and it's a mystery. Now, Q theology student answers. I mean, it is mysterious why he loves us so much. Sometimes I think, uh, just keep your head down. Let God keep loving you. Maybe he won't notice what a selfish, lazy sinner you are, Becca, and he'll just keep on blessing you. Oh, hi. Hey there, Lord. How are you? No, I wasn't talking about you. Oh, yeah, you heard that. And you still love me? Phew. St. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 8, but God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we don't merit any of this, but God sets it all up so that every generation, here we are nearly 2,000 years after Christ walked the earth, can receive his truth, the same truth he preached 2,000 years ago. Why? As Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 74 says, it's for the salvation of all peoples, so that all men, women, and children, Catholic and non-Catholic, all may be saved. How awesome. And how does he do this? How does he transmit the truth? in its entirety, unmarred by time and bad teachers and perhaps the loss of documents, let's say over centuries and across continents? How does he do this from generation to generation? He does this with the help of what's known as the tripod of truth. Okay, so we'll use this term, the tripod of truth. Think about any tripod, okay, one that holds up a camera, uh, an easel that holds up a canvas, maybe a stand on which a telescope rests, if you remove any one of those three legs, uh, the item on top, the camera, the canvas, the telescope, will fall over. It's the same with the tripod of truth. Remove any one of the three legs and the item on top, the truth, falls over or doesn't get handed on accurately. Okay. What's the tripod of truth, you ask? Let's back up for just a moment to the concept of divine revelation and use another analogy first before returning to the tripod of truth analogy. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 75, says, Christ the Lord, in whom the entire revelation of the Most High God is summed up, 
commanded the apostles to preach the gospel, which had been promised beforehand by the prophets, and which he fulfilled in his own person and promulgated with his own lips. In preaching the gospel, they were to communicate the gifts of God to all men. This gospel was to be the source of all saving truth and moral discipline. So the entire revelation of the Most High God, aka divine revelation, beginning with God's revealing of himself and of his plan of salvation for all human beings, beginning with the Israelites, the chosen people, and the Old Testament, and then culminating with Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, coming to earth in the New Testament, is entrusted to the apostles. They are to preach the gospel, to communicate the gifts of God to all men, so that all might be saved. No pressure, St. Peter, St. James and St. John, or Saints James and John, you got this. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 76, goes on to say, the gospel was handed on in two ways, orally and in writing. We often associate divine revelation or God revealing himself and his plan for human beings as coming to us through the Bible. It does, but in part. Divine revelation, in addition to the written word, comes to us through the spoken word. And that makes sense if you stop and think about it for a moment. Jesus Christ, who was fully man and fully God, reveals himself, his infinite self. So everything Jesus, who is God, said and did and taught and even didn't do has infinite significance. It couldn't possibly all be recorded. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 25, it's the very last line of the Gospel of John, and therefore the last line of all four Gospels, says, there are also many other things that Jesus did, but if these were to be described individually, I do not think the whole world would contain the books that would be written. So if we write, wrote down everything that Jesus said and didn't say, did and didn't do, um, the way he interacted with others, the world could not contain all the books that would be written. So divine revelation comes to us through the written word and the spoken word. God inspired the writers of sacred scripture to record a great portion of divine revelation in the written word. And he also entrusted a great portion of divine revelation to the apostles through the spoken word, or what's known as sacred tradition. That's tradition with a capital T, as distinguished from small t, little traditions that could be changed. So we have sacred scripture, aka the Bible, the written word, and then we have sacred script, uh, excuse me, sacred tradition, what's defined as the oral preaching of the apostles handed down in the church from bishop to bishop to bishop, or the spoken word. An analogy or illustration that's often used to help us understand this is known as the font of divine revelation. So picture a fountain with two streams flowing out. One represents sacred scripture and the other sacred tradition. As they flow out and pool together, that great body of water is known as divine revelation. So it's one revealing of God, of himself, but it comes to us in two ways, through the written word and through the spoken word. God reveals himself to us through sacred scripture and through sacred tradition, but it's one great big revelation that's handed on from generation to generation. How? With the help of the magisterium. The magisterium uh, is a term that comes from the Latin root word magister, which means teacher. And the magisterium, which we just read a little bit about in the first half of the episode, is defined as the official teaching authority of the church. 
the Pope and the bishops in communion with him. God could have set up things any way that he wanted. He has the power to do that because he's God. And how does he do it? So he calls 12 men to be his apostles, and he sets Peter up as the head of those apostles. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says to Peter, And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So God puts someone in charge before he heads back to heaven so that there is a clear and visible head of the organization. But it's not just any organization. It's one founded and run by God himself. So despite the sinful people who have been left in charge on earth, recall that Peter, the first pope, was the same man who denied Christ three times and was nowhere to be found when Christ was going through his darkest hour. Despite the sinful, imperfect people leading the church, Jesus prays that Peter's faith won't fail, and he promises to be with us until the end of the age. So God entrusts this divine revelation, the sacred scripture and sacred tradition, to the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church. Why? Not because the popes and bishops are any better or any more holy than other people. Some were incredibly smart and holy and talented, and some were very far from any of those things. But because God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plan. And part of that perfect plan is ensuring that we all get the same truth so that we may all be saved. So again, God, who is outside of time and space, knew that in 2022, Rebecca Doherty would want to receive the same truth that he entrusted to his apostles almost 2,000 years ago. So he sets up this beautiful system between sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium of the church to ensure that that truth gets faithfully handed on for two millennia, okay? at this point. Let's return back to the font of divine revelation and the tripod of truth. Picture the analogy of the font of divine revelation. As the two streams of divine revelation flow out, sacred scripture and sacred tradition, these two ways that God has revealed himself, it's the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, or the base of the fountain that we could say catches them and safely guards them. So God entrusts his sacred scripture and sacred tradition to the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, who catches and guards and then over time interprets and hands on that divine revelation. Picture in the analogy of the tripod of truth that if any of the three legs were removed, the truth would, we could say, topple over or not be handed on accurately from generation to generation. For example, if there were only sacred scripture or the written word, we would miss out on so many things that Christ handed on to the apostles through the spoken word. Or if there were no magisterium, no official teaching authority, the interpretation of sacred scripture and sacred tradition would be up for grabs and we'd be running in thousands of different directions. If you're wondering, has this really worked for 2000 years? Has the truth really been handed on accurately and without error? Just look up, do a Google search of any teaching Okay, from the church's moral teachings, um, those are often the kind of the hot topics that people like to look up. Uh, look up any moral teaching on abortion, euthanasia, adultery. Uh, look up any of the church's Christological teachings on the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. And you'll find that what's taught today is the same exact thing as what has been taught for hundreds and hundreds of years, okay, which is amazing 
It really is mind-blowing if you step back and, and think about it. There's this legendary anecdote told about Napoleon Bonaparte uh, as he was conquering city after city after city. It said that he approached a French bishop one day and announced, and next, I will destroy your Catholic church. And the bishop apparently turned to him and said, uh, good luck. We've been trying to destroy it ourselves for hundreds of years, and so far we have not been able to do it. So good luck with that. Okay. In other words, between the sex abuse scandals, the mismanaged funds, the hypocrisy, the lukewarmness, the ignorance um, of not only popes and bishops, but Catholic laity, somehow we are still standing Okay, 2,000 years later. And it's not because of us. It's because Jesus Christ founded a church and entrusted his saving truth to it so that in 2022, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after he walked the earth, each of us could still receive the truth, truth, and nothing but the truth. And we praise God for that. Next week, we'll read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 120 through 155. And we'll discuss the setup of the Bible and the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll also discuss one of my favorite characteristics of the Catholic faith, and that's the fact that we are not a religion of either or, but a religion of both and. When it comes to the Bible, many will ask, okay, so is God like the Old Testament angry dude who levels cities, or is he like the peaceful hippie Jesus who preaches love and forgiveness? The answer is yes. Wait, what? The answer is both and. The Old Testament and New Testament, as we just read in this, this week's reading of the Catechism, um, hang together. They are one uh, part of the one sacred deposit of faith, the one great big divine revelation God entrusts to us. And so we um, come to know who God is through both Old Testament and New Testament, and we don't have to pick either or. But God gives us a full and beautiful picture of who he is and of his plan for each and every one of us. So thanks for joining me this week, and I look forward to being with you next week. God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.